morning. Hey, I wonder if you wanted to tell your family story in a way that was interesting and in a way that truthfully said something about your family's core values and sense of purpose or destiny in the world. I wonder how long it would take you before you needed to get to the topic of money, how your family dealt with money. In my experience, I think it might take somewhere between 10 and 15 seconds. <laughs> From when I was very, very young, I was told over and over and over again by both parents and all my aunts and uncles, the same basic story. Your grandfather came from China to the United States at age 16. He had barely any money in his pockets. He worked his fingers to the bone day and night. He worked for five cents a day until he could bring his wife over and start a family in this space. It takes hard work and savings to provide a place, to provide a place for you and for your family. I was told that story as well as the story about how both uh, sets of grandparents, my mom's parents and my dad's parents, in time saved up enough money to start their own stores. And as Chinese-American people in these little southern rural towns who had no natural way to connect with the Caucasian or African-American communities there, made a space for business by extending credit to the poor people of the community, both sides of a family, telling the story about how it is that we make our way through the world by extending grace and kindness to people in need, by trusting them. One of my favorite stories, this grandfather, Grandpa Wong, my dad's dad, my dad tells me the story so often when I was little about how it was that he was, he was, he was like colorful soul, a swashbuckling, fist-fighting, whiskey-drinking, gun-toting. You know, he, he was hanging out with the southern men of his time. And there was one evening where he was out gambling and uh, won enough money to buy uh, my dad's first car when my dad was a teenager. And my dad tells this story about how he, he my grandfather was like a big risking soul and he won big and uh, late... In, in the night or early in the morning, as the case was, he left there at this place where he was gambling a $50 tip for the cleaning lady. Now, this was like the early 1950s. So Google tells me, and Google's never wrong, you know. <laughs> Google says that like $50 in the 1950s is like $615 today. I remember as a young boy saying, why in the world did Grandpa leave $50 for the cleaning lady? See, my dad would tell me the same answer all the time, because the cleaning lady was important to your grandfather. He knew what it was like to be in the working class, and he was extending money to those who uh, were in the working class and needing help. These stories shape our sense of personality, our sense of purpose and destiny. And in addition to these heroic stories, the honest portrait of our family story has uh, less pleasant stories as well. My mom is one of eight siblings, seven daughters, one son. And I just found out this story a handful of years ago. 
that when my grandparents died, the entire inheritance went to Uncle George. It's a very patriarchal system set in southern society in the 1960s and 70s. It's so interesting that that's a part of the family story. I always remembered when I was young, one aunt who always seemed angry, and I thought she just had a personality problem. <laughs> and as I traced the story, I realized, oh, my aunt felt disregarded. There is pain and brokenness in the family story because of their handling of money. The theme of money is a source of pride, a source of purpose, and a source of pain in my family's life. But it's part of the truth of who we are. How we spent, saved, and apportioned money said something very real about our existence. As in my family story, so it is the case in all our stories, as families, as individuals, and as a church community. It's hard to tell an accurate story of where we're going, what we're doing, who we think we are, and what impact God has called us to make. It's hard to tell that story without including stories about money. There's a man named Richard Halverson. He was a Presbyterian minister, chaplain of the Senate in the 1980s. Let's read this short quote together just so that you like get it in your brain and mind. He said, the use of our money is an exact index of a person's true character. I wonder what you think about that. The exact index of our character? He's representing what I think is a Jesus perspective on stuff. That beautiful kingdom realities can come into being in our lives and then through our lives in the world through Christ-like apportioning of money and financial resources. And the opposite is true as well, that the unchrist-like use of resources is in the world a source of extraordinarily pain and conflict and damage in the world. I could tell you story after story after having been at this church for more than 20 years about friendships in tension and friendships ended because of financial deals gone bad, of relationships, even marriages under stress, and marriages ended or never entered into because of disagreements about money, of small groups that had a really fun time together until there was tension about money, and moments of stress and tension, and moments of gracious breakthrough through honest conversations about money and what it means to submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. We cannot really present a full picture of our narrative, our story, apart from getting to the topic of our financial resources. And so that's why we're going to take uh, the first three weeks of February to talk about the topic of money. And we're going to do that here on Sunday morning. And we're going to create some other context for you uh, to get in the game and to have conversations uh, that might feel like courageous conversations, but have the power to lead you into a, a new experience of freedom and life. I want to grant from the beginning that conversations about money, especially in the context of the church, can be, well, 
weird. <laughs> you know, they can be stressful. I sent out a survey to a bunch of friends at the river to just get some input on how, what we should address here and what we should be aware of and what we should not do. And it was just so clear that people have such different experiences regarding money in our congregation, I suppose in most. You know, predominantly, our community has a lot of really earnest people in it. That's sort of the main personality. People who are trying really hard and wanting to do a right and good thing. And for that sort of person, there's a kind of sensitivity to like, are you going to do another guilt trip on me? <laughs> you know, the pastor standing up on your big microphone and telling me I haven't done enough, that God just wants me to do a little bit more. And it's like... So I just want to say that, oh, for all of you who like, are trying so hard, it's like no desire to afflict anyone with guilt. There are a bunch of us in the church who have made terrible decisions with our money, and there's shame that like, clings to us, like, like a stained piece of clothing or mud on the bottom of your shoe that you drag everywhere. And I want to assure you that there's grace in this space that our conversation, even though it it's, has it, conversations about money get invasive. You know, Jesus is sort of, one person said, he's a little in your face. He talked about people's idols. But he always spoke of those conversations with hope in his heart, not to condemn people, not to make people feel worse about their lives, but to give them wisdom to send them on a pathway of greater joy and to open our eyes to the reality of God's presence always with us. So I just want to begin by proclaiming the grace of Christ in this space. This is the atmosphere in which we breathe and live and have all our conversations. And I want to acknowledge also that we're in a season where it's like a lot of companies are like laying off people. So there's people here under stress or maybe you know people under stress. Again, this is the space of um, honesty and grace. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into uh, some scripture. So, Lord, into um, this space where we have so many powerful feelings and where many of us are experiencing stress uh, in the valley in these days. Cover us with your presence as with a shield. Protect us from uh, voices of condemnation. And grant to us greater wisdom and greater hope for a future that you want to um, impart to your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. In the coming weeks, there's going to be some other people sharing who are not like church staff people. Because I want you to hear from people who are in the work world and maybe who you identify with better than pastor or so-and-so. But uh, today you get pastor so-and-so. Uh, and I want to give you just the most basic biblical uh, framework through which to think about our financial dealings. If you're a reader of the Bible, you might be aware that there is so much material in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, in practically every genre of biblical literature about what we are to do and not do with money. And that's really helpful stuff to us, but I don't have time to go through all of that stuff. So I want to go to the source 
There is, I believe, in the Old Testament, one text that is sort of a wellspring, the fountain from which all other biblical wisdom flows. It comes from the book of Leviticus, and even though it comes from the book of Leviticus, this text is not primarily a set of rules or laws for us to submit ourselves to, although there are rules and laws for us to submit ourselves to. It's more of a dream, a dream that intends to occupy our hearts and minds and then send us on a different life trajectory. I want to acknowledge that Leviticus is the place where many Bible plan, reading plans go to die. <laughs> Genesis is interesting. There's a creation story. And it's like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all these interesting family dynamics. Exodus is interesting. You meet Moses, you know, in this big, huge conflict, and the Red Sea opens, and all this sort of stuff. Leviticus is filled with laws that are extraordinarily strange to 21st century ears. They're written to people who are primarily familiar with the agrarian world, farmers. And there's hardly anyone in this church that's a farmer. So you have to put on your imagination cap, and I'll try to comment along the way to translate this ancient dream to our context. Leviticus 25, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, this is being the leader of God's people. He spoke to, the Moses, to Moses on Sinai, saying, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. That's interesting. Six years you shall sow for your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard in that Sabbath. So, I'll pause here, there's more to go, but there's an entire year of rest for the land, it says in verse 4. That's fascinating. In Genesis chapter 1, at the very beginning, we see that there is a rest for God from his labor. In Exodus chapter 20, there is commanded a Sabbath rest for God's people, and now in Leviticus 25, there is a rest commanded for the land itself, for creation. And this Sabbath rest for the land is given with clear instruction for the human beings that are tending that land. There is to be no sowing or pruning. That would maybe be the equivalent for us of investing or optimizing your team. There's to be no systematic harvesting for an entire year, no saving up, just resting in the provision of God. The central vision here is that we are to embrace work as part of the human experience, but work in a particular way, not work as slaves like these people would have experienced in Egypt for 400 years an entire slave culture. They are not to work as slaves. They are not to work ceaselessly. They are not to work eating the bread of anxious toil. They are to work under the assurance that they are a people who are treasured. They are a people upon whom the kindness of God 
rests. And so they can rest as well. And this rest would create an interesting sort of community because in time, there would be a stratification of these people. They were all slaves, but some of them would become landowners and some of them would become laborers. But on the Sabbath, this seventh year, they would live as brothers and sisters, landowners and laborers, teachers and aides, executives and assistants, working alongside as one community, cared for by the God of grace. Verse 8, it goes from there, from this idea of one year every seven years. It says, you shall not, you shall count off seven weeks of years. So put your mind on here. There's like a lot of sevens going on. Seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. So a very poetic way of saying every 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the 10th day of the seventh month. So seven weeks of seven years in that year, in the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement at 7 a.m. No, not that. <laughs> on the Day of Atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land and all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and you shall return, every one of you, to your property, and every one of you to your families. All right, so what was already wild, stopping work for an entire year, gets exponentially wilder, wouldn't you say? Every 50 years, there is a proclamation of liberty, a super sabbatical for the land and for the entirety of God's people. This is this is like not like anything anyone's ever experienced here before. The elements of this liberty are numerous. Let me walk through them. They're all in the text in Leviticus 25, but if I read it all, it would take a long time. Let me just summarize it here. Celebrating Jubilee means that everyone returns home, that all debts are forgiven, that all land is returned to its original owners, and all slaves set free. Now, I want you to place yourself in that world and imagine what it would feel like to let go of all of the things that we put our hands to as things that we are in control of. It is to let go of them all. This is very cross-cultural for us. In modern life, who wants to go back to their ancestral land? I don't want to go back to Dallas. I don't want to go back... I mean, I like to visit China, but I don't want to go back and live there. I don't know anyone there. But the point of this all translated into our context is that God is casting a way of being in the world in which work is seen as good and important. It existed before the fall. It's not a curse to us. And the rewards of our work can be honorable should be honorable. But I think this jubilee vision is telling us that the unchecked accumulation of wealth or debt 
is fundamentally dehumanizing and is not the will of God for his people, is not good for us. The unchecked accumulation of wealth, which is sort of the world in which we live, not good for a human being, according to this text. It's not what God commands for his people. I think we could say it warps our sense of self one way or the other. It has the capacity to make us think more of ourselves when we have more and less of ourselves when we have less. It's possible that in your life there might be someone outside of you that you think more of because they have more. And it's possible for every single one of us for there to be people in our lives that we encounter that we think less of because they have less. And God is saying, that is not the way I want you to be in the world. This is not the life that I have for you. So there is this sacred reset, this disruption of human ways of being in the world. The basic convictions of this sacred reset, I would articulate as these. Let me try to, as my old boss used to say, put the cookie on the lowest shelf so that we all can get it. The convictions are, number one, that God owns everything. God is the owner. Leviticus 25, 23 said that the land is not to be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, says the Lord. And maybe those of us who've been living in Silicon Valley for more than a few years need to just repeat that to ourselves, whether we believe it yet or not. Maybe it would be a healthy thing to say the house is the Lord's. The car is the Lord's. The savings account is the Lord's. God is the owner of everything. The most basic practice in the Old Testament to reinforce this idea that God owns everything is called the tithe. The tithe just means the tenth. It's a practice of setting apart one-tenth of everything that comes in as the basic affirmation that all of it belonged to God anyway. It's the most basic disciplined practice that reminds us that it is not mine. It is the Lord's. I wonder how you feel about that. It's sort of the training wheels of the journey of God's people. I will say more about that in a little bit. But the central conviction is that God owns everything. That we are stewards. Steward is another word for managers. You are in middle management. You know, we are stewards who will give an account of our stewardship one day. That we will all look back like, I don't know, you remember that, remember that old movie Schindler's List? You know, where the Jewish-German businessman gives an account of what he did with his money. And he sees what was really worth money and what was not worth money. And it's a day for him of incredible honor. People loved him so much for all he did. And it's a day of awareness for him that there were some things that he clung to that really were not all that worthwhile. There is such a day for us as well. And the third conviction is that God is a good provider who intends that every single one of us and everyone in our broader community has enough, not by merit, but by grace. Not because we've earned it, but because we're human, we're image bearers. 
This mystical dream of the Jubilee is a contested dream. It's opposed. Or we might say um, the human spirit is at war with this dream. It's not only mysterious, it's not only hard to grasp, there is something at work in the world that does not want to grasp that dream, that would like some other dream instead. I wonder if you are aware of that spirit at work in your heart and in your mind. When Jesus spoke of money, he often used an Aramaic word called mammon. It's untranslated into another English word or Greek word even. It's just given as mammon, and it's always capitalized as if it's a personal name, a personal power. Andy Crouch, one of the great Christian voices in America today, said that mammon is not simply money, but the anti-God impetus that finds its power in money. It's an impetus. Mammon is an energy. Mammon is a claw that would grab you. Mammon is a sword that would pierce your soul. Mammon like a prison that would seek to contain your life and mine. And the biblical vision warns us that if we do not serve God with the stuff that he has entrusted to us, we will not be free even though we think we will be free. You ever thought that's like, once I get to this amount, then I will be free. Jesus warned that we will simply make ourselves into slaves of another master called Mammon. And this master will slowly but surely form us in its image, a spirit that's callous, a spirit that's grasping, a spirit that is willfully blind to human need around us. And I can speak with authority about that spirit because I've experienced it in my own life. You know, the first time that I was taught about tithing, this basic practice of setting a portion, a 10% away, and it's like just entrusting it all to the Lord, I was aghast. I had never heard that before. I, I had met Jesus as a friend, as a savior who came to cleanse me of my sin. But I did not understand the teaching about Jesus as the provider of all things, as the one who sent me in the world to be a blessing with his stuff. I remember I got dragged to church one day by a friend, and there was this seminar being done on tithing. And this seminar leader was so persuaded about tithing, this idea that God owns everything, and he really will take care of you, and your life really will be freer and better if you submit yourself to this discipline. And the whole time I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm kind of leaning away and thinking like, yeah, that doesn't sound right to me, <laughs> you know. And he said, I am so convinced of this. I've been traveling in the world doing this teaching. I know God is the provider of your lives. I just welcome you to do an experiment. And if you've never tithed, just to try tithing because you will meet the God who provides for you. And I'm so sure of this, this guy said, that if you do it and God doesn't provide for you, send me a letter. This is back before email. Send me a letter, and I will reimburse you for what debt you, know, debt you have incurred. 
He gave me a money-back guarantee. That's how confident that he was that God would provide. And I remember sitting in that room feeling like, I should try this because he's, I can't lose. He's going to give me my money back. <laughs> and at the same time, I couldn't do it. I could not open my grasp on the sense that I need to take care of my life. No one else is looking out for me. And because I fundamentally felt like no one else is looking out for me, my heart was constrained and I was limited in my capacity to extend kindness to other people who were needing kindness. I was like a dammed up stream. And I'm so grateful for all of the courageous, godly people who had enough patience to help me uh, begin a practice in realizing that God really is looking out for me, that God really is going to provide for what I need. And I want to encourage you, if you are sitting today, I know there, there have to be numerous people who felt something like what I felt like so many years ago. And there's just like unbelief. There's like a rock of unbelief in our hearts. And I just want to say, God will meet you in that. And he will remove that stone. And you could be free and your heart could enlarge. That's one of the great things about being part of a church. Those of us who don't have a natural gift get to be around other people for whom it seems like, oh, they did it. You know, and it seemed relatively easy for them. They had joy in that. And that's one of the, my favorite things about being a part of the river. I've been here for 22 years. When I came, there was this story that had just happened before I got there, where the church was in partnership with an organization called World Vision. They had set their hearts on a country called Malawi in southern Africa. This country had a problem with getting clean drinking water, and so World Vision was figured out a way to dig wells for pure drinking water, and they were raising money for that. There was this entire region that needed something like 20 or 25 wells, and they're like 10 or $12,000 a piece or whatever. And so we we're just going to see what we could do. Like, how could we participate in this? And there was one faith-filled soul that the river said, let's buy them all. Let's, let's, let's gather as much money as we can. Let's provide for all of the wells for that entire region. They cast that vision, and the church raised in a little short amount of time $250,000. Let's do it, because that's more important than our ski trips, you know? And there was like one individual, if you've been around the church, you know this story. There was one individual whose uh, parents died, and he received an inheritance, about a quarter million dollars. He thought about buying a home, because even then, 20 years ago in Silicon Valley, that's what you needed to get into a home, and this person didn't come from money. So they were getting ready to do this, but then they found out there was an organization in South America that was uh, ministering to women and children who were abused, and they were trying to build a home there for them, a safe refuge. And they needed like $250,000. And so this couple said, let's give it all away. We could have a house. God will give us a house if he wants to give us a house. There's another need that's more important. And their faith and their joy and their giving is like so many steps beyond what I could ever even imagine. But it's one of the great things about being a part of a community. There are people who help us imagine a world that we could not imagine on our own. Now, I know that's a lot to take in. So I'll just try to land the plane here. 
that say that no one becomes what God intends them to be overnight. This is a season of learning for us. And my challenge to you is to take some step of courageous conversation, some step of learning. Let me tell you some of the opportunities that we are providing for that. Number one is a seminar called Growing Towards Generosity. It's a Q&A session with next Sunday morning speakers, Tom and Bree Shea. Tom's an entrepreneur and the president of North Pacific Airways. They'll be teaching here on Sunday morning, and then Sunday afternoon at 1, they'll tell a little more of their story and answer any questions that we might have. This is a seminar I think that will be interesting and compelling for everyone. It's about how we can find more joy in our giving, and that is one of the great aims. The second thing is a seminar called Practical Steps to Financial Health, Sunday, February 26th at 9 a.m., so works for you guys. You're here at 11, but you got to wake up early. So that's led by Michelle Albertson, who's a River member. She's a certified public accountant, and she is extraordinary in her practical health and in her overflowing joy in the management of money. This seminar also is for everyone. You might have like been working on this really hard, and it's worked pretty well for you, but life's changed. Maybe your salary decreased, or maybe your salary increased over the years, and you're in a different sort of situation, and it's just kind of a tune-up. Michelle's been super helpful at that. And maybe some of us have never opened our books, so to speak, to the presence of God. And Michelle's going to have all sorts of practical resources you can use and one-on-one -on -one guidance for any challenge you may feel or knot uh, that's in your heart that's locked up. You could be free of that knot. And then finally, there's a book study called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. That book is written by a man named Randy Alcorn. Super practical, super helpful book. That book discussion begins Sunday, March 5th at 9 a.m. There's about eight sessions, I think. And Ehoma, um, our director of uh, Compassion and Justice Ministries, will be leading that along with Grant Jenks, another River member. Uh, pop in on them. If you can't bring yourself to like wake up to come to a 9 a.m. thing, just buy the book. Uh, it'd be super, super helpful to you. I'm going to send you into some groups to chat for a little bit, but let me just close by reminding us that the story of our lives, the story of our purpose and the healing of our pain and the story of our destiny in the world cannot be told in all its glory apart from the handling of our money, some holy practices that bind us to the heart of God in our management of stuff. This is true for every single person. It's true for every single church. And I want to remind you also that when Jesus came to this earth, he launched his ministry in Luke chapter 4 by proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Most scholars think he's talking about the jubilee, that in his coming, that in his presence, there is untold blessing that he's longing to pour out, to set captives free, and to form a people who have the sort of imagination that in what years we have here on this earth, we might live as the greatest blessing that we could possibly be and so get to our end and be celebrated and celebrate 
with the God who takes care of all. Let me pray for us, and then there's going to be some questions that come up on the screen behind me. As I pray, I would just invite you to monitor what might be going on in your heart. You may have feelings of gladness or feelings of dread. And I pray for us all that we could see ourselves as standing under the waterfall of God's grace, the God who delights in providing for all our needs, the God who, whose intent it is to expand our hearts that it might be like the heart of Jesus. So bless us, Lord, as we discuss, cast away from us, protect us from the voice of condemnation, lead us to eternal, abundant, overflowing life, for we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.